Jesus, we thank you that you came, you died for us, that you rose from the dead. We thank you that because you live, we live also. We thank you that there's hope and meaning and purpose in life now and that there's eternal life in you. God, I pray that everyone here would have that hope and would have that purpose and that your spirit would work and teach us your truth and draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a seat again. It's good to see you. Um, there's a lot of new people here, and we're thankful for that. We welcome you and uh, hope you've been made to feel welcome. If you don't know me, my name's Jimmy Inman. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the teaching pastor. And we're in a, a series right now called uh, True Love in an Unloving World. I think this is the fifth week. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 today. And I, I want to start with a question this morning. Uh, you know, we're in this series about love. Really, it's been aimed to the heart, I guess, in a lot of ways. Uh, but today is a little bit more maybe to the head. And so uh, hopefully you can think with me a little bit today. This is actually going to be the first of a two-part message. Uh, it's going to take a couple of weeks to get through this. So today and the, and the 27th. But we're going to address some things that are very, I think, important, very foundational to our society today. But I, but I want to ask this question. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? How do you know what's right and what's wrong? A seemingly simple question, but I don't know that it's really all that simple. I mean, if you go back a few decades, there was a pretty common consensus of what's right and what's wrong. But honestly, a lot of that today has gotten flipped on its head. You know, when I was growing up, if someone, uh, when it came to, say, sexual morality, if someone affirmed what Scripture said and tried to live by that, you might have been made fun of, you might have been called a prude and old-fashioned and no fun and, and whatever else. But most, there's not a whole lot of people who would have disagreed with you. Like, you're right, but I'm not going to live that way. I want to do what I want, and if you want to have a lame life, you can have a lame life. That's what a lot of people would have said. Do you understand in our society today that if you affirm a biblical sexual ethic, people don't just think you're boring and old-fashioned and prudish. People think you're immoral because you're a bigot. That's how much things have flipped. And so the question becomes then, who's wrong, who's right? How do you know what's right and how do you know uh, what's wrong? I mean, does morality change? I mean, can something like be wrong here and right here and it was wrong now and it's right now? Maybe in the future it'll be wrong again? I mean, how, how do you know if something's right or wrong, how, how can you tell that? I mean, is something right or wrong because it's what your parents told you? But I mean, what if your parents were immoral people? Is it because of what your friends say or what society says? Is it laws? Is it what the, the, the government says? That's what some people think uh, morality is. But, but what if uh, the government says at some certain age you have to turn your children over to us for us to raise? Would you think that's moral? Now, if you've got a two-year-old, you might sometimes. But I, I mean, seriously, 
Would you think that's moral? Is something moral just based on like what you think or what your conscience says? What if your conscience says something's right and my conscience says something's wrong? How do we know what's right and, and what's wrong? Is it just based on our feelings? So how do we know what's right and what's wrong? But I'm going to ask another question, and this will kind of connect into the passage. And, and today we're just really laying a foundation uh, kind of for morality, uh, but it's going to lead into the gospel. But uh, really, this is where I wanted to, to want to go with this and just decided it would take more than one week. But really, you know, this is Pride Month. Really what I want to address is how this scripture that we're going to look at today, and, and it'll be the 27th before we get to this, how it addresses issues of sexuality and gender, and how do we know what's right and wrong there? And, and so, you know, here's, here's, here's a question. Can love ever be wrong. Like, if you say you love someone, does that mean you can do whatever you want to do with that person? Can you have love without a moral basis? And you would say, certainly love could never be wrong. And uh, I would agree with you, but does that mean that any action uh, that we describe as love or as based on love is right? What would you say? You don't have to answer out loud, but I hope you're thinking along with me. What if, though, you have a brother and sister, and they say that they love each other, and they begin to express that in sexual ways? Would we say that's right? Our laws say no. But why? Well, because it's harmful, and that'll play into a verse that we're going to read here. What if a 60-year-old man says he loves a 14-year-old girl, and they're involved sexually? Would we say that's right? Uh, but it's based on love. How do we know these things? So I, I, I would say this. If something is loving, it's right. If it's unloving, it's wrong. So if something's wrong, it's unloving. If something's right, it's loving. But that, doesn't that sound a little bit like a dog chasing its tail? A little bit confused in that statement. If something is loving, it's right. If it's unloving, it's wrong. Uh, if, if something is wrong, it's unloving. If it's right, it's loving. But doesn't that at some point all kind of go back to say there has to be some kind of objective standard to know what's right and wrong, to then know if something is actually loving or unloving? And so then you may ask, well, what does all of this matter? Well, I think it matters a lot. It matters personally. It matters societally. I hope especially those of you that are younger or teenagers, I hope you'll track with me because you've got some big decisions to make as you move forward. I mean, what's true? How do you know what truth is? How do you know what right and wrong is? Is there actual objective morality, just like absolute? Uh, you know, what are you going to base your life on? Is abortion right? What is it, how does it speak to racism? How does it speak to sexual issues? How does it speak uh, to, to gender issues? This is huge uh, stuff. What are we actually going to base our lives on? What does it really mean uh, to love people? 
And if morality and love are, are, are connected, what we believe about morality and how we live morally and how we treat people determines whether or not we actually love people. And, you know, we talked about last week, nobody's probably, I made this statement, I started with this statement last week, we ought to love one another. Well, who's going to disagree with that statement? But what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we do that? If somebody says, well, uh, you know, I can love somebody in this way, and you're saying it's wrong, and they're saying then you're bigoted by saying you can't love somebody in, in, in this way, there's a lot of issues that, that play into this. So with that to hopefully give us some things to think about, I, I hope that I'm kind of raised some questions in your mind. Let's see if the scripture can answer them for us. So we're gonna read Romans 13, eight through 10. And I'm gonna try to unpack it. And I wanna show you four truths from here that as far as how love and morality relate together to kind of lay a foundation. And then like I said, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna build on this and specifically look at some of the biggest issues in our society today as this relates to gender and sexuality and those kind of things. So Romans 13, starting in verse eight. And in the context, verses one through seven are about the authority of the government and in verse 7, he had said, you know, owe no one anything and give honor to those to whom honor is due. And he talked about paying taxes and those kind of things. And so he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not uh, murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we looked at that last week and uh, another time where this Old Testament saying is quoted in the New Testament here. And he says, love does no wrong or love does no harm, maybe. Love does no ill, depending on which translation you're in, to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, what's this saying to us? Uh, number one, it's saying that love is the summation and the fulfillment of the law, so it is impossible to separate love and morality. Love is the summation of and fulfillment of the law, so it is impossible to separate love and morality. Uh, I mean, look at what he, he says here again. He says, in these commandments, the law is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, do you think it's a good thing to love people? No? <laughs> We're a tough crowd, aren't we? Uh, you think it's good to love other people? Do you want to be loved by other people? So, you know, we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, but this is, he's saying this is summed up by these commands. And he says that love is the fulfillment of the law. And so John Stotts put it this way. He says, the truth is that love cannot manage on its own without an objective moral standard. That is why Paul wrote not that love is the end of the law, 
but that love is the fulfillment of the law. For love and law need each other. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. Now, you might be thinking, oh, this doesn't sound very romantic. You know, this doesn't sound very warm and fuzzy when we, when we talk about love. I mean, I, I've never seen this on a Hallmark movie before, uh, you know, this discussion of love and morality. But think about it for a second. Can you love someone and mistreat someone at the same time? Let's say you have a husband who, who, who abuses his wife, a husband who, who beats up his wife, and then afterwards he says, I love you. Is that love? And so how do we separate? I mean, we talked about this last week. Love is a verb. Love is, is action. Love is moral, righteous, godly action. And so, again, we can't separate love and morality because love is the summation of the fulfillment of the law. Now, here's where it gets challenging. Who gets to decide morality? Whose morality are we talking about? I mean, our society teaches us today that morality is just personal and, and subjective. There's no absolute truth, so there's no objective morality. In other words, I can't say what's right and wrong for anybody else. And for me to stand up here and say what's right and wrong, uh, a lot of people would say I'm bigoted and narrow-minded and, and those kind of things. Now, I would say I'm not saying it from myself. I'm pointing to an authority outside of myself, which is God and his word and, 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 and the natural law but you may reject that too. But let's just kind of think through this for a minute because I think this is foundational and it's so important in our society today. Is there actual morality? Can we actually know what's right and wrong? A lot of people would say no. Well, let's consider some of their arguments. Some people would say that, um, you know, you can't, tell me or you can't know for me what's right or wrong for me, you can only know that for you. You heard that? Yep. Now, let's, let's reason through this for a minute, okay? Let's say, like we do sometimes, that uh, Pastor Philip and I uh, go play golf together. Okay, and he's a better golfer than me. Uh, he's about a shot a hole better than me. So, you know, we, we play, have an average day. He's probably gonna beat me by 15, 20 strokes, something like that. But, but let's say, you know, we, we just play for fun, but let's just say we're playing competitively one day and uh, trying to win and we're on the last hole and we're tied. And so, you know, we both tee off, we hit our drives. I hit a perfect drive. I'm in the middle of the fairway. I'm in good position. Good position, but he hooks his drive over in the woods somewhere, and I'm thinking, okay, I got my advantage now. And, but as we're going down the fairway, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I stopped to let him hit his ball, I see Philip move his ball. He kind of kicks it out of the woods back into the fairway. And, um, 
And I say to him, hey, you can't do that. You're cheating. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I say, um, you know, I, I, I saw you move your ball and you're, and you're cheating. He's like, I didn't move my ball. And then I'm like, now you're lying. I, I, I saw you do it. And he's like, okay, I, I moved my ball, but who are you to tell me that that's wrong? Uh, you know, you can't do that. You can't tell me uh, that that's wrong. You can't tell me what's right and, and, and what's wrong. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the problem with that? What'd you say? Okay, there's rules to the game, but there's a deeper issue here. What's the issue? Okay, his heart, that's the issue. What, what's the issue, though, when it comes to kind of moral reasoning here? Okay, let's think for a second. He's telling me that I can't tell him what's wrong. What's the implication? That I'm wrong for saying he's wrong, so he's doing exactly what he's accusing me of doing. And my point is, at some point that... Um, you know, unless there's some kind of standard, we can't even begin to have a discussion. That, that everything becomes illogical. It becomes contradictory. So uh, th this is what I would say. Sometimes, you know, we get intimidated when, when we speak truth and, and people are like, well, you can't tell me what's wrong. I just say then, how can you tell me what's wrong? You say, I'm wrong for saying you're wrong. Are you not wrong for saying I'm wrong? Just reason with people. You see, the, the, what's true is what corresponds to reality. And if you have the truth, you have reality on your side. And either people are going to see that, or if they don't see it, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So uh, think about this. People will say, well, you can't know what's right for someone else. You can only know what's right uh, for you. Well, again, it's the same kind of thing. Um, it's, it's logically contradictory because if, if someone is, if I'm saying, well, this is wrong for anybody, and you're saying this is only what's wrong for you, it's right for me, then once again, you're saying I'm wrong in saying this, and so we're back at the same place again. Uh, same thing when it comes to the idea of there's no absolute truth. Uh, you know, people say this all the time. It's what we're taught. There's no absolute truth. Well, think of it this way. And this comes from a book called Love Speech. It's written by David Robinson, who used to be at True Life. He's, he's a pastor at Washington now, in, in Washington now. And uh, throughout this book, he gives some kind of imaginary conversations to make his point. So consider this conversation. Uh, it's between two guys named George and John. I'll come back to it in a minute. Uh, but he's, George says there is no truth. John says, is that true? George says, of course it's true. John says, if your statement is true, then there must be some truth. Do you understand? The guy has just contradicted himself. And so anytime you make a truth statement, 
You can't turn around and say there are no absolutes. Nobody believes there's no absolutes. It's a smokescreen to uh, enable people to pick and choose what they want to believe about what's right and what's wrong. Nobody believes there's no absolutes. Because to believe there's no absolutes, you would have to say, if, if someone came in your home and uh, raped your wife and your daughters and murdered your, some of the people in your family, there's no objective moral basis for actually saying that's absolutely wrong in every case and every circumstance if there are no absolutes. I mean, I hope when I come to a four-way stop sign that people believe in absolutes and everybody there is not a relativist. I mean, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that if there's not some kind of standard, there's no basis for argument or debate. We're just a bunch of animals fighting at that point. And, and I think that at its root is some of the problems we have in our society and why people are so frustrated and, and so angry is because if you can't agree on a standard, you can't have any kind of rational discussion about anything. Um, there's the, uh, you know, mind your own business argument. Like, you can't know what's true or what's right unless you experience it for yourself. This is a big part of things like critical race theory and intersectionality. If you have a certain experience, it gives you a unique window into the truth instead of truth being something that's outside of us coming from God and being some kind of objective uh, kind of thing. It makes everything subjective. But you understand, uh, and I'm not saying that your experience doesn't give you more insight into things, but if you can only say what's right or wrong based on what you actually experience, I can only say that stealing is wrong if somebody breaks into my house, or I can only say, murder is wrong if somebody kills me, but oops, it's going to be a little bit hard for me to say that while I'm dead. There has to be some kind of objective standard. What about, um, you know, this is what people say about morality a lot of times. It's just human rules. It's just human rules. You know, so we just kind of, you know, go by what the government says. Well, can governments not make bad, unjust laws? You know, what Martin Luther King Jr. rightly uh, claimed in Letter from a Birmingham Jail is that what makes uh, a law a just law is that it's in accordance with God's uh, moral law, that it's in accordance with the natural law, what God has actually revealed. That's what makes it right. And if it's not, it's wrong. And, you know, if there's not morality behind law, we have some major problems, that's why some of you would say, even though abortion's legal, in some cases, it's immoral. It's why after World War II, we held the Nuremberg War Trials, and we punished uh, some of the Nazis as war criminals. Why? Because uh, we, uh, what, what people said, what uh, ethically, is it's not enough just to say that you were following orders, or that you were following the law of the land, or the rule, or the direction of your uh, government, that it was, immor it was immoral what was done. It didn't matter what the law said. But you say, okay, hopefully, you know, that's kind of obvious. It's a Holocaust. It's murdering people. What, what about something more common to us? So let me give you a common example. Let's think about speeding for a minute. Because doesn't speeding seem like an arbitrary law? <laughs> I mean, most of us drive like it's an arbitrary law, if we're honest about it, right? 
but I mean, it is kind of arbitrary because, uh, you know, you can have a 45-mile zone and somebody, you know, be driving 60 and be really safe and somebody else driving 35 and be unsafe. But, but think about it this way. Is there something, is there something moral behind it? So, so let, let's say that um, me and Pastor Philip and Shane are convoying together to go to, to Nashville, and we're driving down 11E to get on 40 in Knoxville. And so it's a 55 there. And let's say I'm driving 58, and uh, Shane passes me going 60, I'm not going to think anything about that. It's five miles over the speed limit. What's the big deal? I mean, technically, that may not be right, but I'm not going to think of it as kind of like, you know, as a moral issue. But, but let's say that uh, Pastor Philip comes speeding by us going 120 miles an hour. I'm probably going to think something about that, right? I'm going to think there may be a moral issue here because he's going to be, he, he's, he's a danger to people around him. And, and, and the highest value, according to the natural law, is the preservation of life. And he's being a danger to life. And this would be why we would have speed limits, not just as an arbitrary governmental rule, but because we're trying to protect and take care of people, which is a moral issue. But to take that another step, what if I later on find out that the reason that Pastor Philip uh, was driving 120 miles an hour is because uh, Teresa was in the car having a heart attack and he was trying to get her to the hospital uh, to save her life. At that point, I would not think he was doing anything immoral because he was seeking to do no harm. He was seeking to be helpful and maybe that posed some risk because of the speed, but he was doing it to save somebody's life. So at that point, I would think we would think that's a moral thing to do, but my point is ultimately there has to be morality behind laws that, and there has to be a higher standard. It has to relate to God to be objective to actually mean anything. And then last thing I want to say here before I move on, and, and what I'm trying to help us to see, like once again, I'm trying to help us to think, is that anything that removes an objective standard of morality. It's just simply illogical. It simply does not hold the scrutiny of reason. And it points us to a moral law, which points us to a moral lawgiver who is God, who is just, that we have to answer to at some point. But it also says to me, we don't need to, when it, when it comes to sharing what we believe, we don't need to be intimidated and run and hide in fear. There are answers to things that people say that are just simple and logical. But this may be uh, the most common thing. One of the most common things you hear about morality is, you know, again, it's personal. Mind your own business. You follow your conscience. You do what you think's right. And I'll follow my conscience. And I'll do what I think's right. And you can't really tell me what to do. Now, let me quote from David's book again, another one of these uh, imaginary conversations between George and John, and listen to this to the end. It's not long. So George says, John, I've been thinking. My conscience tells me that it's wrong to seduce another man's wife. I don't know, George. My conscience tells me adultery is fine as long as the person I'm seducing is very attractive. John, I think you're wrong about that. Adultery is always wrong. For you, perhaps, George, but not for me. No, I believe it's wrong for you also. Now, hold on a minute, George. Who are you to tell me, tell me what to do with my own body? Do we ever hear that? George says, what do you mean? 
John says, I mean, you cannot tell other people something is wrong for them just because your conscience tells you the thing is wrong for you. But my conscience, George says, tells me adultery is not just wrong for me. My conscience tells me it's wrong for everybody, including you, John. No, no, my friend, you have it all wrong. Let me explain. Your conscience is allowed to tell you what's wrong for you, but not what's wrong for anyone else. That's the only rule you need to know. And so George says, I think I see your point. I guess I will have to rethink my view on this issue. So John says, good, I'm glad you've seen the error of your ways. And so George is thinking, and a minute later he comes back and says to John, I've been thinking. And John says, yes, George. So George says, my conscience tells me that adultery is okay too, as long as the person I am seducing is your wife. After all, if she wants to, who am I to tell her what to do with her own body? Thank you for the lesson. <laughs> and that's the lesson that if there's no objective standard in the words of the book of Judges, we can all do what's right in our own eyes. But the point of all this is when we do that, because you can't separate love from morality, we end up mistreating and harming people instead of actually loving people. And we end up, because of that, having to answer to God. Second, though, we see here in verse 8 that we have an ongoing moral obligation to love everyone. And uh, if you're new, don't get nervous. I spent most of the time there. You're not going to be here to like 1 o'clock or anything like that. So just relax. L look again at what he says in verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so I, I say this is everyone because Jesus made it very clear that our neighbor is everyone in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This means this includes people who aren't like us, people we don't even like, people we disagree with, people that may be living in moral lifestyles. Really what he's saying here is there is no limit on love. He's saying we're to pay all of our other debts, but love is a debt that we can never pay off. We can never love enough. It's a debt that's always going to be outstanding. Now, this is challenging because what's our nature? Our nature is to give to charity so we feel better, uh, soothe our conscience, and then just kind of go do our own thing like, well, that was love. Uh, what's, what's our nature in, in, in marriage? It's like, you know, to do a little something so she'll do a whole bunch for me. And I, you know, I did this, I got her this gift, so I'm good for a while. But what he's saying here is this debt to love is an ongoing debt that we're to continually be paying off. We're to love everyone as much as we can. Now, here's the thing. Are we ever going to be able to do that? But, you know, when the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, when he says the commandments are summed up in this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, we're not going to be able to stand before God someday and say, hey, God, me and you are cool. I'm all right. You ought to let me into heaven because this command in and of itself condemns us. How often have we failed to love others as ourselves? We have come so far short of discharging, paying this debt to love others. We're guilty we're guilty. And once again, the purpose of the law is not to save us, but it's to show us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So we're called to love others. We ought to love one another. But the question is, how do we do that? 
Well, verse 9 tells us that if we really want to love people, certainly feelings are involved, but it's more than that. It says love is expressed by righteous actions. So we love people by treating them in a godly manner. Look at what he says. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. Somebody may say, uh, you may have a married person who says, well, I don't love my wife anymore, and I love this person now, and so they go and commit adultery together. And the justification is, I've fallen out of love with this one person, and I now love this person. And they say, it's okay. God says, it's not okay. And it, once again, this is how morality and love intersect, because you may have feelings of love for this person, but when you act on them in a sexual way, what you're doing is you're betraying your spouse, which is wrong because you're not loving your spouse, you're not loving your children. Think of all the other people it hurts. Remember what it said, love does no harm? Well, think of the people you're harming. So it's unloving, so it's wrong. So God's standards, when we talk about there being an objective moral standard, I mean, first and foremost, it's an, it's an expression of God's uh, you know, perfect nature. It's an expression of who he is, like it's wrong to lie because God is, is a God of truth. But ultimately, it's because God loves us. And the Bible says his commands are not burdensome. He wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is faithfulness because faithfulness is an expression of love. It leads to human flourishing and unfaithfulness hurts people and God loves us and he wants what's best for us. So the lie that Satan tells us is, is, is that God's this big fuddy-duddy in the sky and he doesn't want you to have any fun when God wants what's best for you and his way is the best way and temptation and disobedience and wrong ends up hurting us and it hurts others. That's the lie. And so uh, think about it. You know, obviously murder would be wrong because it's hurting someone else. Stealing, you're taking from someone, you're, you're hurting them. So it couldn't be love. Bearing false witness. You're hurting someone by slandering uh, their, their reputation. You say, coveting, how does that hurt somebody else? Well, coveting in its nature is selfishness. It's about taking. The essence of love is about giving. And you see, here's the thing. We may not like it, but you see what the natural law is. You say, Man, you may not even believe the Bible. But the, the natural law is, see, the, the Bible teaches us, you know, there's special revelation that's God's word in scripture, but there's also natural revelation. There's a natural law, which is the witness of creation to the fact there is a creator. And there's the witness in our heart that some things are just right and some things are just wrong. Now think about it for a minute. You ever been lied to before? You ever had somebody lie to you and you confront them on it? And they just say, well, it's just not wrong to lie. I seriously doubt if you've ever had that happen. People make excuses. They'll try to convince you it wasn't a lie. They'll tell you uh, they're trying to spare your feelings or uh, you know, they made a mistake or whatever. People will not say 
whatever their background, spiritual and otherwise, people don't usually say, no, lying is okay. Why? Because deep down, whatever we say, whatever society says, we know that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And the point is, when we treat people in a right way, in a godly way, we're expressing love to them. When we treat people in a wrong way, in an ungodly way, we are being unloving to them. Warren Wiersbe says, if we love others, we will not sin against them. As believers, we do not live under the law. We live under grace. Our motive for obeying God and helping others is the love of Christ in our hearts. And then the last truth is just, you know, in verse 10, love does no harm. So things that harm others are unloving and therefore wrong. Now, we'll, we'll look at this more in a couple of weeks, but the word harm here literally means evil. It's talking about moral harm. But it could also manifest itself in, in, in physical or, or, or mental kind of harm. But, but the point is, when we hurt others, if we steal, if we lie, if we slander, if we gossip, if, if we covet, if we lash out at them in, in anger, or even if we fail to do good. I've not really gotten into this for time's sake, but this isn't just all negative because the Bible talks about if we see our brother in need and, and, and are able to help them and, and we shut up our hearts toward them, how can we say the love of Christ lives in us? The Bible says he who knows good to do good and does not do it, to him it, it, it's sin. And, and so when we fail to love, to help, to bless people, when we hurt people, it's unloving and therefore it's wrong. Now, again, people say, can love ever be wrong? And this is where the kind of questions we're going to get into next time. And I hope you'll come back in a couple of weeks, talk about how does this apply to gender and sexuality and just a lot of the things that are going on in our society today. But, but this is how I want to conclude today. What this says to us is we fall short. We're guilty before a holy God because we've not loved him and not loved other people in the way that we should. And so, How's that made right? You see, the thing about an objective moral standard coming from an, a, a, an actual lawgiver is that we're going to have to answer to God someday. And so, I want us just to kind of hopefully bring all this together and help you consider your need for a Savior. I want us to quickly look at one other passage in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 19, it's, it's a story, it's often called the story of the rich young ruler. And so it, it says there's a man, Matthew 19, 16, one came to, to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And, you know, when you ask the wrong question, you always get the wrong answer. And uh, because the Bible teaches us it's, we don't receive eternal life based on what we do, but it's based on what Jesus has done for us, his grace and his mercy. And so I believe what we see here is that Jesus answers in a way to try to help him see that he's barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. He's asking the wrong question, but the guy's kind of oblivious to it. 
And so Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? He says, there's only one who's good. And, uh, and it says in the New King James, no one is good but one, that is God. And, and so Jesus is trying to help him see, you're not good, I'm good, so that means I'm God. Are you going to follow me as God? Are you going to trust me as God? And, and, and then uh, he says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, if I'm having a conversation with Jesus, and I ask him, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And he said, keep the commandments. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because I've already blown the commandments. And so Jesus starts quoting some of the commandments. He says, you know, the ones we're looking at here, the second table of law, you shall not murder, you shall not commit a, a, a adultery, and you, know, you shall not steal, not bear false witness, so on and so forth. Now, now think about this for a minute. What does it mean that we've broken God's commandments? Remember, there's an objective moral standard here. I hope we've seen just from reason. Even if you don't believe the Bible, there's no way around it. And if there's an objective law, there's an, there's an actual law giver. We tend to say, eh, you know, I'm human. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. So what's the big deal? But we're talking about a holy, righteous, perfect God. And here's what God says. You know, if we break the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, which we all have. Is there anybody who's gonna sit here and say, I've always put God first in my life, I always trusted him? You know what that makes you? That makes you an idolater. How about the third commandment? You ever taken God's name in vain? That makes you a blasphemer. How about the one about honor your father and mother? I mean, I don't know what term to give it. I, we've all done that. I guess that just makes us a bad person. I mean, think about it. Everything our parents have done for us, and think about the times in our life we dishonored them. Uh, you know, what about murder? You say, well, I never killed anybody, but Jesus took it to the heart and, and said, you know, if you're angry with someone without a cause, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. I'd say we're all guilty there. How about adultery? I've never cheated on my spouse. Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So uh, how many of us we could say then that we're not adulterers in our hearts? You ever stolen something? That makes you a thief. You ever lied? That makes you a liar. You ever coveted? That makes you selfish. That's who we are. And so, you know, Jesus said this to this man, and in verse 20, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now, I'm calling time out there. He's not kept all those things from his youth. Jesus knew that. And you see, sometimes people get confused about this next verse. because, like, does this mean, do I need to sell everything I have uh, to, to go to heaven? Uh, Jesus is, is exposing the man's heart. Because he said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What did this man say? When he heard this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus just exposed him as covetous. He just exposed him as uh, missing the whole point of this, which was to love your neighbor as yourself, which he failed to do. Jesus just showed him he was guilty. And the point of all of this is we're all guilty before a holy God. And we can't be saved by keeping the law. Listen, we know that ship's already sailed. We know we've sinned in, in a lot of different ways. But the good news is, 
is that God still loves us. We failed to love our neighbor, but Jesus loved us as rebellious enemies. And he loved us so much that he came and he became one of us. He became a man and he lived the perfect sinless life that we failed to live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die, bearing our sins so we could be forgiven and so that we could be brought back to God. You see, the Bible says in Romans 3.26 that through faith in Jesus, God can be just, meaning he can uphold his law, he can punish sin, but still be the justifier. He can declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate point of all of this is we fall short. We're selfish. We're unloving. We don't pay this uh, debt that we owe people uh, to love them, and we certainly don't love God the way that we should. And we can't fix that on our own. We fall short. We've broken the commandments. Our hearts aren't right. But Jesus bridged that gap between us and the Father. This is why I died on the cross. This is why the Bible says that he's the only way to God. This is why the Bible says that we're only saved by grace through faith. It's not our religious efforts. It's not earning it. It's not what we do, but it's repenting of our sins, trusting Jesus Christ. Then we're forgiven, brought into a relationship with God, and we're given a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us so we can live a new life, and we can begin by the power of the Holy Spirit to love people better, and, and, and to, to live more righteously. And see, what this does, it keeps us on, from on the one hand, you know, saying that we're Christians, we're being selfish and going about and just living however we want to live, but it keeps us on the other hand from being just these legalistic, fundamentalist kind of people going around thumping people on the head with the Bible, telling them how bad they are. But no, it fills us with love, but without compromising God's standards at the same time. And so, if we're Christians... We're called to spend our lives trying to pay this debt of love. But if you're not a Christian, you owe God a sin debt. The Bible says the wage of sin is death, but you can never pay it off. But Jesus paid it for you on the cross. That's grace. He died for all of your sins. And if you'll repent and trust him, you can be forgiven of every sin cleansed, transformed, made new. And that's what he wants to happen in your life right now. And so I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're online, I want to ask you to consider the same thing. Have you come to a place in your life where you see that you have sinned against the holy God and that there is nothing you can do to make yourself right with him? And so if that's you, will you just stop trying? But would you humble yourself and come to a place of surrender where you trust Jesus and you rely on who he is and what he has done for you for the forgiveness of your sins? I believe the Lord would invite you just in this moment if, as he's doing a work in your heart by, your, by his spirit for you to ask him to forgive you of your sins. And I mean, if you're sorry and you're broken before him, he'll hear that. 
And just to tell him that you believe in Jesus, that you believe that he's the son of God, that you believe that he died for your sins, that you believe that he rose from the dead. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says, if we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Right now, will you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life? Will you surrender to him? Give him control. Just talk to him. If you need some help in doing that, I mean, there's, it's not the words, but if this is the expression of your heart, you can pray something like this. Lord God, please forgive me of my sins. Just talk to him. God, I'm guilty. I need you. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to change me. I ask you to make me new. Jesus, I give you my life. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And right now, I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to ask you to do something. If, if, if you just did that, if you just called on the name of the Lord, I don't ask people to do this very often, but would you just slip your hand up? And let me see that. Thank you. There are others. Thank you. I want to pray for you. Listen, if, if, if you made that step, you made that decision, you have questions about that, I encourage you to come talk to me. Or talk to Pastor Philip or somebody you know, Pastor Philip, be in the lobby, or to fill out the connection card that's underneath your seat, or you can, if you're online, you can connect with their host, or you can, you can text TLC Decision, lowercase to 94,000, just to let us know. So, you know, if you trust Jesus, he's forgiven you. But that's not the end. That's the beginning of your spiritual journey. We want to help you take your next steps to learn about him and, and to grow in him and just see the work of God uh, continue in, in your life. So let me pray for us. And uh, you know, after we pray, we'll be dismissed. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining online. If you need to talk, come see me. Talk to somebody you know. If you're new, uh, I'd love to meet you if you want to come introduce yourself. But we hope you'll come back for Father's Day next week again. Do part two of this in a couple of weeks. Lord, uh, God, I just pray for everyone who's heard the gospel today that your spirit would regenerate their hearts and draw them to you. For those who have responded to you, Lord, I pray now that you'd fill them with your spirit, that you'd just make yourself real to them, that you'd help them to take their next steps, enable us to help them in that, help them to grow in you. God, I pray that you would help us to think rightly in these matters, to live according to your truth. But Lord, I pray as we live out the truth that we do it in a loving, winsome way that's a light to those around us through the power of your spirit. God, make us who you want us to be as individuals in a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks. God bless you. Love you.